Welcome to this episode of SDI Encounters, a podcast from SDI, the home of spiritual companionship. I'm Matt Whitney. On this podcast, we share stories and conversations around spiritual care, companionship, and contemplative practice across a diverse range of traditions and experiences. Spiritual companions support others on their spiritual journeys through life. Spiritual companions are welcoming and present with those they companion, listening and responding without judgment. And spiritual companions are contemplative and honor silence as a spiritual practice. You can learn more about our work at our website, sdiworld.org. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us share and spread the word about the life-giving practice of spiritual companionship, you can help us out by subscribing to this podcast through your favorite app. You could give us a like or even write us a review. Thank you for listening. Azra Rahim has a degree in molecular biology and holds an MD. She describes herself this way, Muslim Sufi, spiritual quester, truth seeker, globe trotter, lover of food, flowers, and all things green, indiscriminate dispenser of hugs, kisser of all things beautiful. Azra came into the SDI studios to share with myself and Frederica Helmier about her experiences growing up in Iraq, India, and Montana, how she came to Sufism, a form of mystic Islam, and a little bit about the workshop she's offering during our 2020 conference in Santa Fe in April, which is called Seeking Feminine Wisdom from Our Muslim Mothers, Poetry, Writing, and Whirling, as spiritual practice. So Azra, thank you for joining us. We're here in the SDI offices today with Azra Rahim and Matt Whitney and myself, Federica Helmier. And we're really honored that you drove across the, the waters out here to Bellevue to chat with us um, about your workshop that you're offering in Santa Fe, a little bit about your story and the integration of masculine and feminine energies in Islam. Thank so, you for having me, uh, Frederica. It really is an honor and a privilege for me that you would even consider having me here, so thank you. Our, our pleasure, Azra. So why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about uh, your story. You have grown up in some different geographic places with different influences and contexts. How did you arrive at the point today where you are a, an expert on um, Islamic mysticism and and gender and medicine. <laughs> oh, geez. Yes. And how you came to Seattle. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've listened to a few of your podcasts, and I know you're, you're uh, reputed to have very light questions. So, yes, thank you. Thank you for lobbying that at me. Um, so, I was born in India, in Bangalore, in the south of India, and... Um, uh, in the simplest and most direct terms, my parents were trying to escape poverty um, and so they were looking for opportunities for work and the Middle East was developing, it was going through its industrial revolution in the 80s and so my family decided to move to Iraq and um, 
three months after we got there, the Iran-Iraq war started, and um, it was, it was, it is really, it set the context for my childhood. I grew up in a war zone, and there's some, you know, when you hear that, you you imagine the worst things. But I think in many many ways, it was fertile ground for creating an internal moral compass and also figure out priorities. So for example, I've never been particularly attracted to shopping or owning things because I think from my childhood, I knew how transient they were. One moment you would have a brand new shiny car in your driveway and the next moment it could be bombed out. And so you know, it, you really understand how trivial and irrelevant many things are. And I think my parents had um, uh, sort of a romantic uh, notion that they would go back home. They had you know, saved money, they had built uh, their dream house, and they were going to take their girls and go back home. And my mom was also pregnant. <clears throat> That's a whole other long story. But anyway, so we went back to India for a couple of years. And um, I loved India. There was really very little that I didn't like about India. Uh, I had family that I loved. I had people that loved me. You know, there's awesome food, and it's really the ultimate fruitopia. You know, there's all kinds of fruits, and I love fruit. So I was very happy, but uh, my dad hated it. You know, he had become unused to corruption. He had become unused to lack of discipline in the workplace, and he hated it. And my older sister really detested it. So she barely stayed there for a few months. And we had an aunt who was uh, who had immigrated in the '60s to America. So when my aunt visited, my older sister uh, came away with her. And I think all of us sat back in Bangalore and waited for her to come back, uh, but she chose not to. And so my parents said, "Okay." Let's go. And that same uh, aunt and uncle had sponsored our immigration, you know, decades earlier, but my parents had chosen to defer and defer. And finally they took it and we immigrated to America. Uh, I moved from Bangalore, India to Haver, Montana, population 10,000, flat prairie land. I mean, you virtually saw nothing except for, uh, you know, waving uh, wheat and maybe a couple of, you know, brown blobs in between and those were the cattle, and you could see a storm coming 40 miles away. And uh, yeah, uh, there was the Chippewa Cree Reservation very close by, and my, my mom actually worked for them in the library services. So I gotta, I gotta go from being one kind of Indian to being immersed in another kind of being Indian, although such a awful and misnomer, because they're not Indians, they're Native Americans. Uh, but I also, I think, got experience some of that racism. And interestingly, um, I was more acceptable than the Native Americans. And so to watch all of that, you know, it creates a fantastic foundation as a child. Um, for the good, for the bad, because I think I become eternally cynical and um, sort of always wary and a step back from where life's happening. Um, if you want to stay alive, you have to create counter movement to whatever you're drawn towards. So yes, I think naturally I'm drawn towards cynicism, mm. but to, to live and to have vitality, you have to almost drag yourself and do that work, that energetic shifting of staying in the positive, staying in the light. So yeah. As you moved around to these places, Azra, uh, from Bangalore to Iraq and back to Bangalore and to Montana, 
How did your, your faith, your identity as a Muslim woman, how did each of these places shape that part of you? <clears throat> so interestingly, I think uh, the, the, the seeds for interfaith work uh, actually were uh, planted in Iraq. Uh, because, you know, uh, in Iraq, suddenly, instead of being in my comfortable Muslim community, suddenly I was in a group of um, expats, you know, uh, and you had to build bridges to anyone who was willing, especially because we were in a war zone. So it's really very interesting to watch human beings. You know, although I am cynical, I know the good there is in human beings. And the good really comes out when we are forced with, uh, forced to face a calamity or a crisis. So in a war zone, you do get to see the really, really ugly parts of humanity, but you also get to see the almost del deliriously good in humans. You know, people come together, they share things like onions. You know, it was a war zone, there were sanctions. Sometimes we'd go months without seeing milk. Uh, the milk that we got was in crates and it was shelf-stable in the desert heat for months. So I'm not entirely sure what this milk was, but when we got milk, we shared it with the whole neighborhood because everybody had kids and everybody needed their calcium. So anybody got a crate? Everybody divided it, two bottles per household or whatever, you know, whatever felt fair. So, um, so the interfaith seeds got planted in, uh, in Baghdad, especially because I think I attended an Indian central school and lots of Indian uh, uh, students, uh, teachers who were housewives who were forced to become teachers. And that was steeped in sort of uh, Hinduism and Hindu mythology. I took uh, uh, Hindi as a second language, Sanskrit as a third language, uh, while being in a very Muslim culture and hearing the call of prayer, you know, at 6 a.m. and at noon, at 3 p.m. as we were leaving school. And also because my parents were Muslim Sufis who um, had a favorite saint in Baghdad. And so every evening after school, we would go to the saint's uh, shrine, you know, to, to pray and to spend time. So uh, between the international friends and the Indian Central School and the Muslim uh, uh, familial uh, context, I was raised to be interfaith, especially given the, the context of the, the war zone, you know, uh, people pull together, uh, you drop artificial boundaries because they're irrelevant because you're, everybody's just trying to survive. Um, my, my transition to America was interesting. It was definitely a shock in every sense of the word, but somehow in that transition, I dropped religion. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't want it to be a part of my identity anymore. Somehow uh, I decided I was a little too cool, a little too chic to have a religious uh, identity or to have a spiritual practice. So, yeah, uh, when I came to America, I suddenly was very secular and very science oriented. And I stayed there uh, because I think it was it was more comfortable. You know, I could draw a nice little square and play inside of it. Uh, if you couldn't show me evidence of it, I could say, I don't believe it. I refute it. You know, it didn't have to be messy and I didn't have to feel into what I was living. I could just think about it. And so it was safe for me. And um, yeah, I stayed there for many years. And then I made a U-turn and came home. Mm -hmm. I came home to Islam first, and then I came back. Now I'm coming back to sort of reaching out uh, 
to the interfaith piece of that. Mm. What was that U-turn all about? Um, I think medicine had a lot to do with it. I think I went into medicine thinking, hey, listen, I'm a good person. I want to be of service and uh, I'm smart enough to do this. My God, that sounds a little arrogant, but you know, truth. I thought I was smart enough to do it. And then there were all these uh, realities about it not being uh, ideal. Uh, practicing medicine every day is a compromise and it's a hard compromise and you don't know where your integrity ends and where the, the, the sort of the infrastructure of the process of the infrastructure of the existing medical reality begins and it's a very hard gray area. And I'd also chosen to be in some very hard places. And in retrospect, I don't know why I chose to be in those places, but I did. And I think when you're in that place where science cannot answer the questions, you have to keep drinking deeper. And I think even in science, the deeper you drink, the more you find divinity, the more you find God. I think it was Planck who said, when you take a the first sip out of science, you're convinced there's no God, but you keep drinking and then mm. the bottom of the glass, you find God. And I think that was sort of true for me. Um, I was convinced that science would answer all that was relevant and important in my life. And the longer I lived it, I realized that that simply wasn't true. Mm. I love that. Uh that analogy <laughs> Yeah, I or think Plank, sorry. Yeah, Plank, yeah. yeah. I think it's Plank of the Hope. I'm not I might have to Google it. Can I ask you what some of your spiritual practices look like? Like what is that Today? well? Yeah. <clears throat> so um, you know when I became secular, I also really uh, embodied my feminism you know I became very feminist in my thinking and I was very clear that I was not willing to uh, I was not willing to negate my individual identity I would not do anything that did not feel authentically respectful towards me and I didn't uh, particularly care if it was God or God's religion I didn't want it if it didn't want me um, and so I had really sort of purposefully distanced myself from Islam and it was not uh, an easy uh, uh, U-turn back so you know you have to kind of do these meandering things and you have to sort of play your way back home and so for me uh, a Sufism which is sort of the esoteric aspect of Islam felt safer because there are no rules that are definitely sexist that I could say I don't want that I, I did I decline I refuse thank you very much goodbye they were more accessible they were more um, neutral in so many ways. And so my U-turn, part of my U-turn, was through uh, spirituality. Uh, so I didn't go back directly to religion. I went to spirituality and through spirituality went back uh, to religion. And so for me, the things that were just beautiful and irrefutable were things like doing a zikr. Uh, zikr just means remembrance. and. Um, uh, you know, there's no one standard to zikr, but, you know, for the sake of generalization, 
it could be two people, it could be a group of people. We sit in a circle, on the floor, in chairs. It does, I mean, all, the forms are all irrelevant. And usually there's a, a chant that happens, you know, you just start chanting and there's usually music of some kind, maybe just even a frame drum. Somebody's beating a frame drum, holding a steady rhythm. And there's something about that um, I remember the very first one I went to, my parents have been um, Muslim Sufis all their lives. You know, they went to a Sufi pilgrimage in, instead of a honeymoon when they got married. Uh, so uh, it had been something that I had always heard of and sort of very peripherally observed, but I didn't want to become part of it because it felt messy and whatever. And then sometime in 2006 or seven, I went to my first my first zikr where i had voluntarily chosen to go and it was not a very big group we were in uh, a church in north carolina and i remember just listening to them chant and something opening inside of me and me just crying and i hate crying in those days i would i hated crying even in private let alone in public and i just sat there and cried and cried and it took me years to figure out why i had cried you know because my science 3D mind kind of went through, was I, had I not eaten enough? Was I sleepy? Was I tired? I mean, like, yeah. what was it? What were, what were the physiological parameters yeah, of yeah, this yeah. encounter? Yeah, well. And you realize that there wasn't the physiology of it. It was really the, the transcendental quality of being touched by something inexplicable, you know? My heart opened, I, uh, I, I saw beauty that could not be quantified uh, by the five senses, and I was moved. And, and you know, that kind of set that foundation to keep going back for more. And so today my spiritual practice is quite rich. Um, you know, I do, uh, I partake in group zikers at least twice uh, a week. Um, and again, that's the work. That's the work that I need to do to keep myself, uh, to stay in the positive, to stay in the light, you know, and to not let my brain take me wandering down the dark uh, garden path. Um, and so I do zikr twice a week. I do something called the sema, you know, like the the whirling dervishes, you know, the the devotional uh, prayer of the Mevlavi semazans. We do it at least once a month. Um, and then there are other things. But for me, also, nature is big. Nature and quietude is my daily um, ritual. It's, uh, it's a way I honor myself. It's a way, it's kind of like taking your cell phone and plugging it into the wall when it says 1%, you know, you're gonna die and you plug it in. And then for me, it's like being in nature it's like a vertical connection. It's immediate. It requires no words. It requires uh, no setting of space. Uh, nature itself is sacred space. So just stepping out into that space every day. I mean, for me, I think I almost need that to maintain my sanity on a daily basis. Uh, but there are other rituals, which I've already mentioned, that I partake of also. Did you know that SDI organizes travel experiences? We call these SDI journeys. SDI has been leading passionate travelers on spiritual journeys around the world for over 25 years. Not just vacations, but truly exceptional trips filled with inspiring and enriching experiences. We have upcoming journeys planned for 2020 in Iona, Scotland, and an Ignatian journey through Spain. 
Explore our site to find out more, sdijourneys.org. That's sdijourneys.org. And now, here's part two of our conversation. I'm really interested, Azra, in like the metaphysics of the of the whirling, of the 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 physicality of it, yeah, and then the the meaning um, of what it takes to whirl for a while. Which I, 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 my very superficial understanding of it is, um, you need to be able to focus each each cycle, each circle on a fixed point in order to maintain the turning for a while. Can you talk a little bit about the? The whirling and like the dizziness and the focal point and the, and the purpose of it all? Yes. Um, yes. I would love to talk at nauseam about that. <laughs> How much time do you got? <laughs> um, so f- for me, uh, the last two years have really um, been about the whirl. Uh, I lost my mom two years ago, and I was in a really bad, dark place. Uh, and usually when people walk down that path, you know, you end up with antidepressants and then, uh, you know, <laughs> anxiolytics, and you end up with sleep uh, uh, agents and what have you. And I really didn't want to. And so between the uh, bi-weekly zickers and the turning, I think I've managed to just keep my head above the water for the last couple of years. And so for me, the turn is really, really important. Um, Because I think for me personally, and I can only speak from my lived experience, and I can tell you some generalities, but for me, the turn really is about physically transmuting pain into something better. Mm. And I can do the sort of the the meditation meditation or guided meditation, but... for me, there's a, there's a, an element of uh, heavy energy that gets stagnated when I'm in grief, and I feel like I need something kinetic to move it, break it up, mm-hmm. and then process it and get it out of my system. And so for me, uh, moving meditation has always been where it's at. Uh, it's just something that works for me, and I, and for me that that makes all the difference, right? I'm only living for me. Um, and in terms of the actual physicality of the turn, yes, in the beginning you do get quite uh, dizzy, you will feel really nauseated, you'll be like, whose idea was this? Why did I sign up for this? But, you know, some of that again is sort of like um, a yogic practice, right? Uh, part of that disequilibrium comes because your cognitive brain, right, your cerebellum is sending messages to your brain that things are not upright, things are not upright, abort mission, this is not good for us physiologically, stop. But And, and because there is a, a sensed or a perceived danger, that kind of ramps itself up into a, a, you know, like a three alarm siren inside your head and then you want to stop. But there comes a point, and I think it's a it's a way of uh, persistent, consistent communication to your brain and your cerebellum. Like, listen, this is transient; it'll go away. No danger here. It's all good. Keep going. Keep going. And then you get to a point where you're not nauseated, you're not dizzy, and you can keep going. But you will hit another physical limit. You'll be convinced you're out of breath. You're convinced your legs have turned to jello. But again, those are again limitations. Like if you've ever, if you've been a runner, I don't know if you, you know, there's always this point. 
I cannot take another step. I must stop. And then you're like, no, no, just take the next step. And then there's inevitably halfway, halfway down the lap or whatever. You're like, I can keep going forever, right? So these are all sort of psychological barriers. And if you're consistently loving, you can override them and realize that physical limitation to some extent is just a, 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 a concept of the mind, right? And when you are there in that field where you're like, I can fly forever, for me, that's ecstatic. That's like the best high I know naturally without caffeine and sugar because those are my two addictions, just FYI. Uh, if you ever want to bribe me or anything. <laughs> uh, and I can take that energy and I can almost live off of it for a week or two weeks. You know, keep away from the dark, keep away mm. from the shadows. Yeah, Frederick is furiously scribbling out, uh, sugar and <laughs> caffeine. And she's underlining the word bribe multiple times with the red pen. I saw her do that, yes. <laughs> There's no video evidence to support this accusation. Um, I have I have more questions about the whirling, but I but I don't want us to um, miss the opportunity to talk about the the gender dynamics and aspects of Islam and the the integration that you see Islam offering to bring together masculine and feminine energies. Can you talk a little bit about that offering, that gift from Islam, as you understand it? Yes. So, you know, um, I've been chasing the divine feminine in every uh, uh, meaning of that uh, phrase uh, all my life, really. Um, even in science, I think, without consciously being aware of, that's what I was chasing for. And when you look at a faith tradition, you can say, does this faith tra tradition honor this aspect? Right? And there are many ways of evaluating it. And <laughs> Islam, which in the mainstream media is portrayed as this barbaric, <laughs> uh, anti-woman religion, surprisingly, it actually embodies the divine feminine in almost every aspect of it. Right? So for example, if you go to a country and you want to know how good a job the country is doing in terms of taking care of its people, you look at its road, uh, right? Like, does it have a good uh, road system? Does it have a good educational system? So these are sort of infrastructures that you can assess to evaluate how well a country is doing or taking care of its populace. So in the same way, when you evaluate the, tra uh, the um, faith tradition of Islam, you see that the divine feminine is embodied in almost every practical application of the religion. There's a huge emphasis on being embodied. There's a huge emphasis on um, uh, respect towards the mother uh, in terms of not just what is said in the Hadith, which is the hadith is um, the recorded sayings of the prophet, okay? Um, but also in what the Quran says about not just uh, um, 
uh, mothers but also women in general so for example the creation story right the creation story is this long complex story but in Islam the creation story is essentially a one sentence line and it says from one soul there were two semicolon right there's a pause and then the next verse says and reverence the wombs that created you hmm. right so for me, what that really means is there's some truths that are unknowable because I'm a limited manifested entity. There's some truths that are so large, so big, so much bigger than any one of us or all of us combined that we can't touch them, we can't reach them, we cannot understand them with our brains. And we don't need to. All you need to know was that there, were, there was one soul, then there were two. And by the way, people, have sacred reverence for the wombs that bore you because they were the co-creator in that process, right? So if you look at what the Quran actually talks about the most important uh, constructs in religion, it's very much from a feminist perspective. It's very much all about the divine feminine. But I think also what I was talking about when I spoke to you about the workshop, in Islam, uh, generally, and in Sufism, the esoteric aspect of Islam, uh, the mystical branch of Islam, there's a heavy emphasis on what they call the 99 names of God, okay? These are all aspects. So imagine that God is this, somebody's going to write hate mail towards me now. Imagine that God is a multifaceted diamond, right? And each of those names is a facet of that diamond that we're trying to explore and understand. Not that God is a diamond or that God has limited facets, but again, we're trying to understand something that is far bigger than us. So we're, we're trying in our human ways to understand God. So there are 99 names of gods uh, of God, and each of those names describes a particular aspect or quality of God, an attribute of God. And all of those names are balanced so that the divine feminine is balanced and in harmony with the divine masculine. Is this the Jamal and Jalal? Yes, yes, you absolutely, you got it, exactly. So the Jalal is the, the sort of the masculine uh, vitality that is required in life, you know, like the hot lava of a, of a volcano. It has almost like a destructive connotation, you know, boom, 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 boom. And then the, the balancing, the harmonic equivalent of it, and the balancing name for it is Jamal, which is delicate and Wait, refined. Jalal, Jalal is feminine? Or no, Jalal, no, Jalal is, is masculine. Jamal, Jamal is, feminine. is feminine. And each of the names of God is paired yes. together? Yes, and sometimes, even when within one attribute, the sort of the corresponding energies are matched mm -hmm. because there can be no life, there can be no thriving when things are in imbalance. They have to be in balance for there to be uh, homeostasis, right? Bringing in my science, secular science. If there's no homeostasis, nothing can thrive, right? So you have to have that balance. And I think some of um, what we see happening in the world in terms of global politics, global economics, war, uh, uh, starvation, it has to do fundamentally with the fact that the masculine energy um, is imbalanced, you know? Uh, and I don't know how, how it happened. I don't know why it happened. 
but I can feel, I can literally feel that the divine feminine is rising and there will be a time when there is balance. Mm -hmm. It is not about one being better than the other. It's not about one being uh, uh, better suited than the other. It's about harmony. Mm -hmm. And for me, one of the beautiful things about Islam is that it's bloody built into the religion, right? And here it is that the actual, um, the actual practice of the religion is so far, mm. so far, and so mm. hurtfully far from what it is meant to be. Mm. I think you can make that case for a number of the major world religions. Yes. Islam is yes. not alone. Islam is not alone. It always cracks me up. I went to the last uh, um, conference uh, here in Bellevue, and there was, uh, Mona Haider spoke about Islam. I don't exactly remember what the tagline was. And somebody asked her, well, essentially, the question was, why is Islam so messed up? And I think you could see that uh, that sort of quizzical w w <laughs> kind of, you know, uh, response from Mona because there is there is no faith tradition that has escaped this blunder. Mm -hmm. I, really, I don't know why this was supposed to happen or how it's gotten here, but it has. And now I can see the tide turning mm. yeah it's time I'm in yes I I'm encouraged that you feel that because <laughs> uh, yeah things have not been going so well with with the imbalance no and, uh, yeah not at all not at all yeah and you know um, even the crisis with uh, with uh, with the planet, the, the the climate crisis, I think it has to do with imbalance. For example, in Islam, part of our relationship with ourself is embodied uh, is an embodiment of our relationship with the planet where we live. And when we are in dissonance with ourselves, when our individual masculine and feminine feminine energies are not in harmony and we're not in good relationship with ourselves i.e. we can't maintain integrity we can't maintain uh, discipline how can how can our relationship with the planet be okay you know why would we take care of the earth why would we hold it as the sacred reservoir that it is meant to be and this is not new in Islam you know uh, uh, in the early 2000s <laughs> People were like ecstatic about the fact that recycling was making a comeback. Guess what? My grandmother recycled. But she recycled from a religious ethical perspective. She didn't do it because it was the hip cool thing to do. She did it because it was the moral right thing to do. That it upset her when things were uh, wasted. We never wasted rice. We never wasted water. We never threw away a piece of paper until it had been used a few times. Mm. You wrote a letter on it, then you folded it, and you made it into a sailing boat in the rain. And then, if it was really beyond use, then you recycled it. There was a guy that actually came on his little bicycle and he would pile up all the cardboard and pieces of paper and he would go. Yeah. I used to teach a class on trash at the University of Washington and I remember sharing the story in, in one of our texts about how a bedsheet, the lifespan of what a bedsheet used to be. And it would yes. begin by this big bedsheet that you would sleep in and eventually yes. it would get worn down enough that you had to turn it into a shirt, right? Yes. You snip it up and you sew it into a shirt. And you wear that for several years, and then eventually it's so worn down that you've got to turn it into 
um, you know, a, a, like a little kid's shirt, something smaller. So you snip it away and it's something so the kid wears it. And then a few years later, it's just worn down so it turns into a dish towel. And then, or a nappy. And then a nappy or a menstrual rag. And, that, and then it's finally at the end of its life. And we talked about this idea of, of deep material. Deep materialism is a term, I think, coined by the economist Juliet Shore. Uh, and it's this idea of really powerfully valuing the material items in our lives um, investing in fewer of them, taking better care of them, and having them last longer. She's coming at it from sort of an economic, environmental aspect, but it's so easy to sort of lift this up and plop it down in the world of religion and think about what are the religious traditions and teachings and practices that tell us that these things are sacred, right? Your clothing, your water bottle, your purse, this couch, our shoes, there is, there is that, there is holiness imbued in the materialism of it all. Yes. And Christianity has done a wonderful job teaching us the exact opposite, that it is um, the opposite of sacred, that sacred is the ephemeral, the spiritual, the, yes. the realm beyond the earth, and that the earth is devoid of all of that. And I see some beautiful work happening across religious traditions from scholars and practitioners who are reclaiming and retrieving and reinterpreting these elements of the traditions to reclaim the sacredness of stuff, the incarnation of God in the material world. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, there's actually a hadith that talks about the fact that we're not meant to stomp when we walk. Because when we stomp, we take that sort of negative energy and imprint the earth with it. Mm. So we are always meant to walk the earth, like literally walk the earth in peace mm. and love. And every footstep, uh, footstep that we take leaves an imprint of energy. And to tie it back to the whirling, you know, when the dervishes whirl, they put the right hand up as I'm take down your studio, uh, and the left hand down. And the idea is that you're, you're seeking, you're begging for blessings, which you don't keep for yourself. You use your body as a conduit, huh? and they flow out through your left hand, and you leave it on the wow. ground where you turn. So you're, you're not asking it for yourself. When you turn, you're turning for your neighbor, your community, your planet, and you're leaving it. Mm. You're not, you can't take anything with you to your grave. It's a tiny, tiny space. There will be, be barely be any space for your body. Wow. So right, we, whatever we do, our actions, our intentions, we leave here. And that's the, that's the point of uh, having a faith tradition that kind of guides you through the actualities of living. Yeah. Right? Oh, I'm so fascinated now by the whole idea of um, centrifugal force and what, oh, yes. what, like, the potential. Someone must have written an essay somewhere on this, the, like, mysticism of, cent of the centrifugal forces <laughs> that turn and force things to the outside and transform them and then spit them out into something different. Yes. It's fascinating. Yes. I, I think I really think that there is something to it. When you watch little kids when they're first like three years old, toddling but just barely, watch them. Every single one of them twirls. Yeah. Right? There's something euphoric about that movement. And um, yeah, and the center of you is really still, right? You have to be, especially when you're turning. And there's something about that that balance of that. Again, it's a balance between the centrifugal force, right, pulling things out, and the centripetal force that's pulling things in. Something about that is, yeah, mm. dynamic and yeah, vital. 
This is Matt Whitney with Spiritual Directors International. Thanks again for listening. Your time and your presence here are deeply appreciated. If you liked this show and would like us to continue making them, please do subscribe now while it's fresh on your mind. Also, we would love to hear from you, so please feel free to send in your comments and suggestions to the email address podcast at sdiworld.org. To learn more about spiritual companionship and ways that you can plug in and join our community, visit us at our website at www.sdiworld.org. Thank you. Blessings and peace on your day, and may you share blessings and peace to others.